0: We're going to just read the verses 21 through 23, Luke 11, 21 through 23. We began last uh, Wednesday, (coughs) excuse me, to look at, uh, I'll just get my throat clear, hold on. (coughs) That's better, I think it's better, anyway. We looked at the beginning of level four, and remember I told you that when you're looking at level four and five, uh, they tend to work together. You will often find you're doing both at the same time. But what I'm trying to do for clarity is to separate these two dimensions, because now we're into real spiritual warfare. We have to understand the nature of the legal battle and the nature of the martial, or if you like, the military battle. There's a, there's a military dimension to spiritual warfare, and there's a legal dimension to spiritual warfare. And we looked last time at Luke chapter 18. So we just read these verses, verse 21 through 23. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him, and overpowers him, or I prefer the word, attacks him. There's a militancy in that word. Amen? And attacks him. He takes from him all his armor in which he's trusted, and divides his spoil or plunders his goods. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, I want you to notice that verse 23 tucked on the end there because I'm sure you would agree that for a lot of well-trained soldiers to go to war when they feel like it, as they feel like, would cause chaos rather than victory. So that's why that verse is where it is. If ever there was a time when we've got to be under the, under the directorship of Jesus, it's when we're involved in spiritual warfare. Because if we all start doing our own thing, we scatter. and We cause confusion rather than actually contribute to the victory. Alright? So let's just look at these verses for a few minutes. And first of all, let's just be clear who are the, the actors, if as it were, in this, these few verses. Who is the strong man? Satan, or it could be a local principality. It, it's the demonic mountain that you're up against. Remember what I said on Sunday night, those of you who were there? There comes a point in every work when, when you start to trouble the devil he will raise up a demonic mountain against you. If you don't shift that mountain you don't go any further. If you do, then the whole land is open to you. And that's why you see many works will flourish and grow to about a hundred or so and then they never get any further because they've never learned how to move mountains. You won't go on for long without causing demonic attention and once you've caused demonic attention he will he will strategize an attack upon you and upon your ministry and it will come in the form of this great obdurate mountain that refuses to move out of the way and so you've got to have the kind of faith and the kind of prayer life that can move mountains and remember what Jesus said he said this kind doesn't go out except by prayer and fasting and so you've got to sort of get Tough and serious if you're going to see any further progress. So the strong man is the is the mountain, it's the local principality or power it could be Satan himself. He's fully armed. We're going to look at it a little while what his armament is. What weapons does he use against us. He regards it as his own place. Notice that this usurping prince thinks this is mine and uh, i will not yield an inch of what i claim to be mine so there's a there's an incredible stubbornness a possessive stubbornness in those demonic powers all right he guards his own place and he keeps it in peace until something happens which is verse 22 someone stronger than he comes upon him now let's be absolutely clear who is the stronger one Jesus, why was Jesus stronger in his flesh? Remember what we've been teaching you the last two sessions? What was it that made Jesus so strong? The Holy Spirit. Remember what I talked to you about, the finger of God. So who casts out demons? The Holy Spirit. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then I am now become the finger of God, and nothing can stand in the way of God, the Holy Spirit, releasing his full power through a human agency and so when we come to war it's still it's still the same stronger one that's doing the battle that's why it's just as easy for the holy spirit to win a war through you and me as it was through jesus once you see that it takes a lot of the sweat out of it amen can you see that because all that you can be is a, is a, a vehicle for the holy spirit To legalize his direct intervention into the affairs of man and to directly come against principalities and powers and smash them to smithereens. That's why we have to be very careful that we're really available to the Spirit and not doing our own thing. That we're really under the the government of Jesus if you like. It's so important. So the stronger one then is the Holy Spirit and in this particular context clothing himself, either with the humanity of Jesus in the days of his flesh, or with our humanity in the particular situation that we find ourselves in. And providing we work with him the way that Jesus did, and providing we are as righteous before God as Jesus always was, and providing we have the same faith that Jesus had, then the Spirit can be as powerful through us as he was through Jesus. Staggering, isn't it? Don't you want to go to war? <laughs> Amen. I love a fight personally, because I, I love to see the Holy, Samarit- Holy Spirit kick the devil's teeth in. And I'm just, I'm just a spectator to the power of God. No sweat in it at all. Amen. Right. So the stronger one is the Holy Spirit clothed in humanity, either the humanity of Jesus or our humanity, and He overcomes Him. There is no doubt about that. No other possibilities even considered in Scripture. Right? And then he takes from him all the armour in which he has trusted and divides his spoil. Well, we we'll are looking at that again in a moment. We're going to see what the armour is that the devil trusts in because if we're going to see effective spiritual warfare, we have to know how to disarm him. Remember what we read in verse 21? And we have to know how to take away his protection. So we need to be a bit wise. It's no use just getting mad and raging away. There's got to be intelligence and strategy about the way we fight a spiritual war. Now I'm not saying that we shouldn't address principalities and powers. In fact, I believe there's an appropriate place for it. But it isn't just ranting at the devil. Spiritual warfare is largely stating the the word of God and insisting on its enforcement. And most of our praying is directed towards the judge asking him to ratify his word now you'll find going around the world at the moment of course as we start to move into spiritual warfare the devil will do his best to confuse everybody and there's all sorts of teaching going around the world saying it's absolutely illegal to address principalities and powers it's not illegal but it's not to be the primary thrust of our praying you can go off the log either side got it Now, it does tell us in Mark 11, for example, verses 22-24, that we are to speak to mountains. It says that, doesn't it? And it says that whatever you say will come to pass. So there is an appropriate place for addressing principalities and powers when the Spirit of God tells you to. And then if you say it according to the will of God, it has all the power of God behind it. But there is a foolish ranting against principalities and powers, which is an utter waste of time. And all it will do is to just generate their fury and it'll bounce back on your own head. So providing you're moving in the Word of God, if He tells you to address them, address them. It's not, you cannot say it's wrong, but it would be wrong to have that as our primary activity. And you'll find they're all around the world at this time, there's all sorts of extremes going on. And you're going to have to walk that balance of truth in the middle of it all. Now I, I haven't more time to say than just that to you today, but obviously the devil's having so much to say about spiritual wa- warfare because it scares the pants off him. That the Christians are beginning to rise up into this thing. And he will do his utmost to confuse and if possible to take away your assurance. You can't go to war with doubt. Amen. I, I c- 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 command you in the name of Jesus. Well, I- <laughs> that has no effect whatsoever. Amen. Praise God. And if you make a few mistakes, don't worry, you'll still win the war in Jesus. Amen. Right, so let's look at a few of these things quickly now. Um, we're going to go to Luke chapter 18, where we were on uh, Wednesday morning, and I want to look a little bit more at this legal battle. We're going to find the two things flowing side by side of it. Luke chapter 18, and I think we're all clear on who the the people are. The judge is clearly God. Almighty, sovereign God who's on your side, wants to bring a judgment, but must do it righteously. And for it to be illegal in the affairs of this world, it has to be a man who pleads the case. Because the rule of this world has been given to man. Do you understand that? Psalm 115 I think it is, I think it's verse 16, if I remember correctly, it says there that the heavens belong to the earth, to, to, the, to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. I think I'm right, let me just look if I see if I'm right there. Psalm 115 and verse 16, correct. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. And again in Psalm 8 you get the same thing. What is man that thou art mindful of him? He's given him to rule over all of his creation. Okay? So there's a clear teaching in Scripture that man has been given the government of this world by God. And so he is the one that has the right to plead. To make the case legal, you have to be a resident of earth. Do you understand that? I could use many illustrations in certain parts of the world. You can't go to court unless you're a citizen of that country. And that illustrates the sort of thing I'm talking about. So it's man that has to plead the case. He has to come and prosecute the devil for his illegal continuing in a rulership that he no longer has the right to have because Jesus took it away from him at Calvary. Jesus the man took it away from him at Calvary. Do you understand that? So now, Psalm 8 has to be fulfilled. That all things have got to come under the feet of man. And of course, Jesus is the forerunner of that generation of men who are going to take over all of creation. And push the devil out and break his nose and kick his teeth in and trample all over him in the process. Amen? You don't sound very enthusiastic about that. Don't you like a fight? Amen? All right. So... um, the judge is God, the prosecutor is the weakest Christian, characterized by a little widow woman, and the defendant is the, de- is the devil, or it could be a local prince, prince ruler. He may be trying to defend his patch. So you may have a local prosecution of a local prince ruling over a local region. Now that's probably more likely the sort of thing that you're going to face. God sends you to a city, he sends you to a region, you're going to have to pull that prince down. And you're going to go to court about it and get him off his throne. Who does he think he is? What right has he got to stay there when Jesus has already triumphed over him in the cross? It's totally illegal, but you've got to go and prove it in the court. And then there comes a battle of faith. And so you find in verse 1 that Jesus says that he spoke this parable to them that men, and that's not a masculine word there by the way, it applies equally to women, that people ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Now this word ought, let me say a little word about this word ought, you'll find right through the New Testament again and again you'll find uh, a word ought or must, in fact I've, I've, found 24 of them very important oughts and musts because some people get the idea well if i'm under grace brother i don't have to do anything you know the idea because that will be law and yet the bible's full of oughts and musts that we are we have that we have to do but not by the flesh but by the spirit that's the difference between them and these two words if i had a i've got nothing to write with if i had a blackboard i'd write it up for you but where well i don't want to upset everything but uh, Okay, thanks. I'll just write them up for you. The first, this is the first um, Greek word. The second one. And this one means to be a prisoner. What's the matter with me? I can't write this morning. Prisoner in chains. To be, to be bound, to be under obligation. This one means to be morally and legally obliged. Have you got these two words? And they're the two words that are either translated ought or must right through the scripture. Now, what I want you to see is that this is the word that Jesus uses here. I don't care whether you feel like praying or not. He says you you must pray and not faint. In Romans 13, 7, for example... Um, one of these words is used, I forget which, and it says that we ought to pay our taxes. Now, how many of you feel like paying taxes? Say, oh, I feel such a spirit came upon me. Oh, I must pay my taxes. Oh, I feel so
1: excited. i am got to pay my
0: taxes. today. Who have ever felt like that in their life? No, you're under moral legal obligation to do so. So you do it. Got it? Yeah. And in the same way, you're under an obligation to pray. Because the world's going to go to hell if you don't. Got it? And so there's an ought about this that, that goes beyond feelings. Because when you're in a war, at times you feel terrible. And every part of you wants to quit. And there's got to be something that keeps you going. You're, you're bound in a pr- as a prison, like a prisoner in chains. And, and if the Spirit of God starts to get hold of you, that's how you feel about certain things. You come to a place of travail and of labor. These are, these are words that are associated with intercession. And there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an agony, which we will see is characterizing the Lord Jesus in a moment. All right? And then at verse 8 it says, And when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? See, this is a place for faith to operate. You've got to stick in there, and you've got to obtain the verdict. If you had a perfect cast-iron legal case that was definitely, definitely going to win the verdict... But you quit halfway through because you couldn't be bothered to stay in there while all the charges and counter charges were heard. What would the judge have to do if you walked out the case halfway through? He'd have to give the verdict to the defendant, even though you had a perfect right to prosecute him. And that happens again and again. People start to get hold of God for a perfectly legal case. And the devil is a crooked skillful lawyer who will drag out the case as long as he can and so put up all sorts of objections as to why God shouldn't give it to you and God is as righteous in his dealings with the devil as he is with anybody else he will allow him to be heard and that's what the long delay is about Okay? That's why it seems like God doesn't care. He seems like an unrighteous judge. Of course, that's not his heart at all. But from the praying perspective, I keep crying to God for this city, and I don't ever seem to get any response. Why? Because there's a case being heard in the heavenlies. If you quit halfway through, then the righteous judge who was longing to give you the verdict, he's prevented from doing it because you hadn't got the faith to persevere. Alright? Got it? So that's a very important dimension of this kind of praying. And not many people are prepared to have this kind of prayer life. That's why Jesus said, which of you? And he knows that as he starts to go through these different levels of prayer, he's going to get fewer and fewer people who will commit themselves to this. But thank God he doesn't need that many. Now I'll give you three things which are to be obtained in the legal battle. Number one... First of all, to bind the strong man, you'll find that in Matthew three twenty. I'm sorry, Mark chapter three. I beg your pardon. Mark three twenty-seven, which is the same passage that we're looking at here in in um, Luke eleven. That there, Jesus says, first bind the strong man, and you've got to know how to do that. And come to uh, Psalm two for example we'll just look at a few psalms very quickly psalm two and of course this was fulfilled to some degree in the in the beginning of the church age when they they had this tremendous breakthrough in jerusalem but we read it's really got a world dimension concerning all nations because Why do the nations rage and why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Now we're talking here about the demonic princes and the demonic rulers. They're not necessarily political. Some of the strongest forces are financial in the world today. Pornographic. Drug abuse and addiction. And so on. You'll find that these are the rulers of this present darkness. Now, obviously, there's a human expression of this, but the source is demonic. You understand that, don't you? So if we smash the demonic, then the human agency upon earth loses its power to enforce that particular thing. And you'll find there's a change in the climate. And, and we can actually change our society by smashing the demonic, like it could be, um, you know, all sorts of ways in which which, which spirits work to, to cause trouble upon the face of the earth. And, no, we could spend hours on it, that's my problem, I, I dare not get into these things. Alright? Now, they find themselves, verse 3, um, they take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Who is the Lord's anointed? right you've got that good we've become the corporate Christ okay that's who we are we are the we are the anointed corporate body of Jesus Christ and we've become the anointed one and so this is being said against us and against the Lord and they say let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us in other words they are feeling themselves they're becoming bound so they can't perpetrate their activity anymore in Cedar Rapids, a, a, a city in the state of Iowa in the United States, you've probably heard of a man called Frank Frangipane, or you probably will hear of him. He's, be, he's quite a, a leader in this whole realm of spiritual warfare. He's been able to gather together the leaders of that city. It's got a population of, I think, round about 200,000, 250,000 people. And as they've started to wage war as an army of God's people across the city, in the year 1989 the crime rate dropped by 17%. Whereas in the state of Iowa, it went up by 12%. And furthermore, within the city limits of, of Cedar Rapids, there is now not one doctor that will perform an abortion. Now they haven't all been converted. And, and the law hasn't changed. But what has changed is the spiritual influence has changed. Because they pull those principalities off their thrones and they're no longer able to rule. And now the, the atmosphere of the kingdom is coming and changing the way people think and the way people act. So when we start knocking these princes off their thrones, we can change the very atmosphere in which we live. And of course, it's much more conducive to people being saved. Got it? Now I could give you many illustrations. This is happening right now in the world when people are starting to get hold of these things. So I'm not teaching theory to you. And I, of course we've seen these things ourselves. Bind the strong man. And if you come to Psalm 149, we could go on in Psalm 2, you will find that we're given this mandate. I'm sure you all know this Psalm. Let's just look at it for a few moments. <laughs> you see there's a kind of praise and worship which is military in its nature. In our church in England for several years now, and when I've moved in different conferences around the world, I've led what I call warring praise nights. They're great fun, and uh, and, and I tell you, we, we will go for several hours in the kinds of wo- uh, praise and worship which pulls principalities off their throne. It mainly exalts Jesus. It doesn't address demons, hardly at all. We're more concerned with exalting Christ and establishing his throne. And then we just say, now come and get out of it. In view of that, you better move. And of course, it's all over in a couple of minutes. But there's a militancy, there's a determination that we are going to enforce the rule and the government of our God. Now, you'll find that Psalm 149 is really describing that sort of thing. And it it talks about dancing uh, with all musical instruments. It talks about the saints being joyful in glory. So it's not a heavy, miserable thing. I mean, it's so full of joy. Verse 6, let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. What for to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the people to bind their kings with chains. Can you see that? And their nobles with fetters of iron. So there's a deliberate policy in this praise and worship. Not that we get blessed, although we do get blessed. There's a much more military purpose in this kind of thing. And look at verse 9, to execute on them the judgment written. And then the last phrase, this honour has all his saints. There's another lie going around and I want to warn you about it. Some teaching saying, oh, you know, if you're going to address principalities and powers, you have to be an apostle. Only generals can address generals, you see. So if you're just a housewife with a few kids, all you can have authority for are your few kids. Well, I want to tell you this. In a war, if a private fires a bullet at a general, does it kill him or not? Amen. 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 He can be just as deadly as a general. Now, the army needs to be led by generals, but you can be just as deadly as a private as you can be as a general. Amen. So don't swallow these lies. They're of the devil. He's trying to stop the army of the Lord from becoming as militant as it's going to be over this next decade. All right. Have you got them? Right. So we can bind them. And this honor, we're told, have all the saints. Amen. If you look at Isaiah 30... Uh, there's, a, there's a lot more scriptures, but I'll just stop with these. Isaiah chapter 30, and it's um, it's in the context of the army of Syria, but it's got a much wider application. Look at verse 29. You will have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept, and gladness of heart when one goes with a flute. <coughs> and then it talks about... Um, uh, look at verse four, Look at verse thirty-one. There's a, there's a lovely passage in verse thirty. Thirty, um, with anger and indignation. But verse thirty-one, for through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down and struck with a rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines and with harps. And in battles of brandishing, he will fight with it. In other words, there's a there's a militancy a musical instrument militancy which which beats down and destroys the rulers that oppose the purposes of God alright, I could show you a number of other scriptures but that's all I've got time for this morning Okay, number two so first of all we want to bind the strong men number two we want to release angels now would you rather go to war on your own or have ten legions of angels fighting with you it makes a big difference to the battle And so, you see, what I think I mentioned to you on Wednesday is that for angels to be released legally into the fray, it has to be a man who calls for them. Remember what Jesus said? I could call on my Father and he could give me ten legions of angels, but then how could the word of God be fulfilled? I mean, they're waiting to go. But there has to be a man who calls to release them into the fray. Now, they're the realm of activity is mainly in the heavenlies, although they do sometimes come and move upon the earth. And I believe we're going to see increasing activity of angels upon the earth as we learn how to walk with them and work with them. But that's another subject. But um, come with me to uh, Daniel chapter 10 to give you an example of this. Let's look at Daniel, good old Daniel. And he's going to show us two principles... The principle number one is the release of angels into the war. And principle number two is the establishing of the word of God. Because God said something, it doesn't automatically happen, even when God's spoken it prophetically, unless a man gets hold of it and by his prayers causes the word of God to become manifested upon the earth. Do you understand that? Now look at Daniel. We'll come first of all to to Daniel 9 and in verse uh, 1 and 2 of Daniel 9 uh, we're told that in the first year of Darius verse 2 In the first year of his reign I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So when I saw this sure prophecy of God, I sat down, put my feet up, got a cold drink, and watched tennis. <laughs> because, because obviously the word of God must be fulfilled and he doesn't need me to make sure it happens. Is that what Daniel says? No, what does he say? Look at verse three. Then I set my face towards the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. In other words, God, I got into travail to cause Your word to come to pass upon the earth. Now Daniel obviously knew the book of Jeremiah. He's quoting Jeremiah twenty-five eleven here, and, Je- and Jeremiah said that his people were going to be in captivity for seventy years, and then God was going to bring about restoration. I would imagine, although I can't prove it to you this morning, that he was also familiar with the prophecies of Isaiah. Would you expect so? I'm sure he was. Now, in Isaiah 44, and towards the end of the chapter, God speaks of the man that he's going to use to restore the fortunes of his people. He calls him by name, Cyrus. And as you go on into chapter 45 of Isaiah... If we had time, I'd love to read that passage, but you've got to read from, I think, it's about 24 in 44 through to verse 10 in 45. And God speaks about this person, Cyrus, who's going to be someone who doesn't know him. He's going to raise him up as a mighty king. He's going to break bars of iron before him. He's going to clear the way for this man. Why? Because this man is going to be used of God to bring restoration for his people. Now, he's a political figure. He's not a religious person. As far as we know, he never did believe in God. And can you see how God can raise up powerful political figures, nationally or internationally. God will clear the way for these men in order to fulfill his word. That's how big God is. So we've got to have part of our prayers targeted on the political situation. What's amazed me in being in South Africa these few days is how little I've heard Christians praying over this present ANC conference. We will be fasting and praying over this and saying, God, we want your will to be done here. We want the men, there's five men going to be chosen today, who could affect the history of this nation. They ought to be the chosen of the Lord. Would you agree with me? Now we should be, maybe you're doing it privately, but I've not heard much said publicly on this matter. We should be getting hold of God. In fact, it would be good if we knew who he had chosen. And we could elect them through our prayers. We've done this sort of thing. In India, and I I mentioned to some of you, I don't know if I told you here, concerning the new Archbishop of Canterbury. Did I tell you that? You see, that's an example. You see, we don't sit here passing, oh God, we've got the, the power in our hands to do something about these things. And Daniel didn't just sit down, he got hold of God for the word that God had put in his heart. Now, can you imagine his excitement? Because Daniel was taken into captivity as a little lad of about 15 or 17 years of age. He was taken in the first captivity in B.C. about 608 when Nebuchadnezzar took the nobles of Israel and took them as hostages to Babylon and then began to, to brainwash them and retrain them to think Babylon. And Daniel totally resisted that process. He wouldn't eat their food, which of course is symbolic. The fact, he refused to be fed on the wisdom of Babylon. He wanted to stay pure for God. And he he was the prime minister to five pagan kings. Now, in the year 559 BC, Cyrus became, first of all, the king of Persia. And But I can imagine that Daniel's ears pricked up. You see, he'd been waiting for some sign of the word of God to be fulfilled. This was the first sign of it. And then he began, to, I'm sure he began to pray. He said, God, this looks like your man. But how on earth is he going to restore us back to Israel? Because he's just the king of Persia over there. Then he became the ruler of Persia Media. Then he conquered the, the Syrians. And now in the year 539 BC, he's now marching on Babylon. And Daniel's getting really excited. Can you see how here's a man, by his prayers, he's shaping history. I hope you can see this. He's causing the word of God to be fulfilled on earth. As he reads what the prophets have said, he knows he's got a responsibility to pray it into action, to pray it into fact. And I know prophets have said wonderful things about South Africa, but if you don't get hold of God for those things, they won't happen. That's the paradox of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And so finally... In the year 539, Cyrus marched on, on, or his armies marched on Babylon. They took over the captivity of Babylon. He appointed his uncle, uh, Dyrus the Mede, to be the regent of that area. And from and one of the first things he did after that was to sort of say, why, we must we must tell God's people to go back to their own land and rebuild the temple in the city. And Daniel was the man that prayed this thing into existence. Now it's an interesting thing because that's now 538 BC, they go back and for four years in opposition they start to rebuild the temple and then in the year, um, uh, let me get this straight, Yeah, 534 BC, they s- stop building, they become discouraged, they lose heart and for another 14 or 15 years the, the rebuilding process stays at foundation level. Now why did they suddenly lose heart and why did that whole activity suddenly stop? Well the answer is that in that year Daniel died. That's the answer. God lost his intercessor. And the whole of God's program was held up until another man could come. And it wasn't until 15 years later when Haggai came prophesying in the power of the Spirit. And in, he prophesied four times in three months. And he galvanized these dispirited people into action that the situation didn't change. It was just as hostile. In fact, if anything it had grown worse. But a new spirit came into the people because of one man's prophetic vision and because of one man's prayers. And they all were stirred into action, including Zerubbabel, who was, if you like, the apostolic leader. He was the governor, but he lost his vision too and was fiddling around in all sorts of secondary things. Until the prophet came and sharpened his purpose again. And then in four years they completed building the temple. And so finally in the year 516 BC they finished what they should have done 15 years ago. Because God had lost his intercessor. Now can you see how vital it is for you and I to start to become God's means of fulfilling his word upon the earth. And of course, in the process of that, which is uh, also part of this Daniel story, in Daniel chapter 10, when Daniel starts to pray, the effect of his prayers is invisible upon earth, but it's immediate in the heavenlies. On earth, it doesn't look like anything's changing, but in the heavenlies, once he starts to pray, you see, up until this point of time, the strong man, the Prince of Persia, is sitting on everything. And there's the Prince of Greece looking after his domain because, you see, the kingdom that's coming is going to affect these two regions. The Persia and Greece are going to be shaken by the power of God. But these two demonic rulers are keeping their goods in peace and sitting there saying, well, we've got control here. There's a few of God's people around, but they're just little... Miserable prisoners of Babylon. There's nothing they can do. They've got no financial resources. They've got no faith. They've got no vision. They've got no power. They're just in bondage. You see, the church has come into bondage to the Babylonian system. What happened to Israel physically has happened to God's people spiritually. And we live like, like paupers in the midst of a Babylonian kingdom where all the power and the authority and the political decisions and the financial resources have been taken from us and have been swallowed by the princes of this world. But we're going to get them back again. Amen. Because part of that restoration process was these words, all the gold and silver is mine, says the Lord, and the the glory of this latter house is going to be greater than the former. He's speaking prophetically about the temple that we shall build spiritually at the end of the age, and the city that we shall build spiritually at the end of the age. I mean, these prophets were sitting down the ages to this present time, and if I had another three days with you, I'd prove it to you from Scripture. Get hold of of the... The magnitude of the days in which we live. We live at a time of destiny. We really do. And so Haggai was able, by the Spirit of God, to cause God's people to begin to actually possess their inheritance. But upon earth, as Daniel began to pray, there was no sign of anything on earth, but there was almighty upheaval in heaven. Because up to this time, the prince of Persia was sitting here, happily keeping his goods in peace. And the prince of Greece was sitting here, happily keeping his goods in peace. And then Daniel starts like one little wretched man starts to disturb the peace of these demonic kingdoms. And it releases the archangel Gabriel, and it releases the archangel Michael to come to war against these principalities and powers. And they start to clear the heavenlies. Now, Daniel's getting faint in this war, and, and, and Gabriel leaves the war to come down to him and says, Now, don't give up, man. We need your prayers. You are legalizing our heavenly activity. And if you quit now, we no longer have a legal mandate to take these princes off their thrones. Stay in the battle, Daniel. Keep going, boy, because you don't know what's happening up here, but I tell you, it's giving us what we've been longing for. It's giving us the chance to, to loose our... Swords and come down in power upon these princes that are wrongly ruling this present darkness. And you've got to have that heavenly perspective while you pray upon earth. Because, and that's your motivation. And I tell you, the battle gets hot and it gets thick, and you want to quit, and every kind of assault will be launched against you. But you've got to be determined you're going to stay. Amen? Have you got the picture? I could talk for hours about this. All right? Let's look into the New Testament now. And uh, Jesus, uh, come to the Got Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. We've got what time do we stop? Fifty-five, is it? Quarter to. Thank you. Quarter to. Right, we've got ten minutes then. Come to Matthew. And it three times in the Gospel of Je- Matthew, Jesus mentions the church. Once in Matthew 5, I haven't time to develop that, where he says to them, you are an insignificant little tiny group that no one's ever going to notice. Is that what he says? You are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. That's Matthew 5, is it 13 through 15 if I remember? Is that correct? All right, come to Matthew 16. I haven't time to go say any more about that, but you'll find that he mentions the church three times, and every time he mentions the church, it's powerful and it's militant. All right, Matthew 16, Peter cries out, you're the Christ, you're the son of the Living God. Verse 17, Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't this reveal this to you, but my Father is who is in heaven. I say to you that you are Peter. You know the play of words on Petra and Petrosi. I'm sure you know that, don't you? All right, so we'll move on on that. You are uh, a, a rock, and I'm the mighty foundation, on, which, on I, literally in the Greek it says, I myself of me will build my church. That's what it literally says. It's got nothing whatever to do with Peter. He's a stone that Jesus will use. He's the foundation, and he's the builder. It's absolutely clear in the Greek. All right, I myself of me will build my church, and... The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, once the church comes, Satan becomes a, or or hell becomes a fortress city trying to defend itself against the church that's going to wipe it out. Amen. So the first declared purpose of the church is to kick the gates of hell down and to let the captives go free. I like that. I like that. I like to be that sort of church. Don't you? And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, will be bound in heaven. Let me just stop here because there's a strange construction here. It's in a. It's in two tenses. It, it's in the future and the past. It literally it says will be has been bound in heaven. It's exactly the same phraseology you get in Mark 11, and verse. Uh, 24 when jesus says whatsoever you believe in prayer believe that you have already received it past perfect tense and you will receive it future tense It's, it's this same sort of contradiction of tense which of course is the language of faith you will get it when you have already got it got it you understand that i trust i haven't got to waste well not waste i haven't got to spend time on that wouldn't be a waste of time of course Now in the same way he says whatever you bind on earth will be has been bound in heaven. What he's teaching us here is that if you want to see things bound on earth you've got to have bound them in heaven. In other words you obtain the legal court order in the heavenlies and then you get a mandate from heaven to implement that court order upon the earth. Once you've got the court order to bind then God will send a legion of angels with you to enforce the court order upon earth. But if you don't get the court order, then you're fighting on your own. Got it? And whatever you loose on earth will be, has been bound in heaven. In other words, the the first activity to bind and loose is in the heavenlies. That's the legal battle. The second activity is upon the earth to enforce the heavenly court order, which is the military battle. Can you see that? And he says the same thing in Matthew 18. Which is the third time the church is mentioned, Matthew chapter eighteen, and once again, verse uh, the first the verses before verse eighteen teach us the authority of the church. Look at this, verse seventeen. He's dealing with an issue of a brother not submitting to authority, and in verse seventeen, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, in other words, to Jesus, it's absolutely incredulous that someone should not listen to the authority of the church. you do not listen even to the church. Where else can you go? Because that's the final authority. In 1 Corinthians 5, end of 5, and in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, we're told there by Paul that we, the church, we will sit on thrones judging angels, and we shall judge the world. He says, can't you settle these little disputes among you? Why go to a secular court to settle these when when you've already got the right to go to the highest court? Because the greatest authority upon earth is the church. It's a higher court of authority than any other court of authority. Got it? And so, with that as a background, recognizing the authority the church has and and knowing it really by faith, saying, well, there's no authority greater than the church then we can go and go to verse 18 and once again assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be, has. it's the same construction (coughs) will be, has been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be, has been loosed in heaven I say to you again, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that you ask it will be done for them by my Father in heaven now this word agree in verse 19 it's the word symphonio it's spelt and it means we get our English word symphony from it Okay, and what it means is it means to make this, the exactly the same sound together to be in perfect harmony that's the idea behind the word so it's not two people coming into a room and saying let's agree together but you're not talking to each other You've got to play as one. One, you've got to play one tune in the orchestra. It's like two violins so tuned together they make the same sound. So it's got to be people who are in absolute spiritual accord. And, and I would suggest that it ought to start in the husband-wife relationship. That's where it should begin. That's why Peter says he says he says if you don't understand your wife and live with her, and if she doesn't re- recognize who you are, if you're not in harmony together, he says your prayers are going to be hindered. Now, notice this little group. Then it says, if two or three of you are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of you. Now, these two or threes, if you like, this is the ideal group to, to go to court and to plead a case. You don't need large numbers of people to go to court, but you do need people who know how to legally wage war. You understand what I mean? People who know how to act as, as the Lord's advocate to enforce the verdict of God. And usually this kind of praying is best done in the twos and threes. Because there you've got real absolute one accord. Alright, now when it comes to the military battle, the, the bigger numbers you've got the better. But this, this legal praying, this legal warfaring, I'm not restricting it. I'm just simply saying this is what the scripture teaches in this setting. And I think it's very wise. Because, see, my wife and I, we can agree. See, my way on things. When we are absolutely one spirit. When you meet my wife, I tell you, she's dynamic. She's powerful. And so's my daughter. I mean, I can pray with them. And, and we, are just, we just absolutely flow as one spirit. We can go to war. And I tell you, I just know the power that flows. And we can take on anything and, and pull down principalities and powers because, because there's, a, there's an ease of unity in a small little group that God recognises. And after all, when you go to court, you don't take 55 lawyers with you. You just need a, an advocate. I don't know how it works in South Africa, but in England we'd have a barrister and we'd have a solicitor. We'd have perhaps three people responsible, even for a very important case. And that's enough. One pleads and the other stand with him, supplying him with the necessary detailed information but that's the picture we have here and we can go to court about anything and it will be done for us by our Father in heaven isn't that a tremendous promise? if we agree on anything what a, what a promise man, just let that sink into your spirit obviously it's got to be in the Holy Spirit but two people who've heard God together over some issue a, a national issue, a political issue, whatever it is then they can say right we're going to go to, we're going to, go to court about this and most revivals that have broken forth in the earth have started through tiny little prayer groups doing exactly this. Sometimes a person on their own. Amen? Well, we'll stop now and have our break and then we'll come back afterwards and I'll, I'll finish the teaching. And then just, just the last part, I want just is to let God's Spirit just come and move amongst us. All right? So we'll have a break until, is it 55? 55, okay. I wouldn't mind just a cold drink. Yeah,
1: that would be good.
0: That would be lovely. You can have that.
1: Johanna Brain, please could you go to the admissions office and see Debbie Ingram, and could I please see Ivan in the sound box?
0: The black and white copy by the end of this session. It just sort of sets this thing out and adds a lot more scriptures that I haven't used. All right. But what I want to do now is to go on to some examples of this. Examples of winning the legal battle. We're going to begin with Scripture and with the the person of the Lord Jesus. I want to show you that this was a very important dimension of the prayer life of Jesus. Now I mentioned one to you yesterday when he legally obtained his right to function as God's son upon the earth in his humanity. Remember that? Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through to 14 when Jesus went into the wilderness and fought a legal battle with the devil which gave him the right in his humanity to function fully as God's son upon the earth with access to all the resources of his father and with the freedom to pull them down to earth and loose them against the devil at any time. Remember that? Now that was a legal battle he had to win before he could function like that and i said to you that if you want to function like that you're going to have to win your own personal legal battle you've got to go and you've got to fight and win and you will be challenged and resisted by the devil you say huh, you are son of god don't make me laugh you say i'll wipe that smile off your face by the word of god amen because he will mock and jeer at you but you don't take a notice of that because uh you know whether a person believes in a sword or not, if you stick it in them, it still hurts. Amen? Amen? Try that on non-believers. You, you take the Word of God and stick it. And say, I don't believe the Bible. Well, we say, well, take that. <laughs> they start to believe in the Bible. Amen? Has the same effect. Right, so there's Jesus in his, his right to function as God's Son upon the earth. I want to show you another one, and this is... Um, the right, uh, let me rephrase that, Jesus obtained his resurrection before he ever went to the cross. That's what the, bar- the battle of the Garden of Gethsemane was about. Now, I knew they need an hour to share this with you, um, but I, I just wanted you to just quickly get this picture that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was becoming the last Adam and all the sin of Adam's race, All the acts and all the nature was being laid upon him in the cross. uh, It was going to be laid upon him in the cross. And and as a man, he was going to become the, the dustbin of all of Adam's race. Can you see that? And when he died, Jesus was laden with sin more than any other man millions of times over. It wasn't his sin, it was everybody else's sin. As a result, death had more claim on him than any other man, millions of times. And if there was one person who should never have been raised from the dead, it was Jesus. Got it? He was taken down into hell to a greater degree than any other man because of the nature of the sin and because of the quantity of sins that were upon him in his death. Now, when he was in the garden... He wasn't. I don't believe so concerned about the physical suffering. What revolted him was being made sin, and taking the sins of the world upon him. The disgusting, foul degradation of the human race was was brought into concentrated form, and and symbolically it was given to him as a cup to drink. And he was going to dirty himself with that totality. Now you think about what men have done from the beginning to the end, and think of the. The foulness of their activity, and think of that all being put upon the sinless Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the revulsion there must have been in his spirit? But he took it, and in that state he died. But before he ever went to the cross, in the, the battle, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he claimed, and this was a fight of faith, he claimed by faith his resurrection. Come to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Now, there is a tape that I I, I spoke at one church on Sunday morning on the power of the resurrection, where I spent a whole hour on this. And I'm not trying to advertise tapes, but if you really want to grasp this truth, I'm sure that you could get hold of this tape, where I spend an hour just expounding this one thing. Because when you see this, you see that when we are his resurrection, I'm sure you know some of this truth already, but when you are his resurrection, it's a totally different thing to being just a saved believer. You understand me? Hebrews 5 verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his godly fear. Now I didn't understand that verse for years, until I was studying the Greek more carefully, and I just discovered that there's a little preposition it's just two letters, and it's ek, ek in the Greek. But what it—it's a preposition that has movement. And and it what is what we're literally being told here is that Jesus didn't pray, Oh Father, I don't want to die. He was praying to be saved, literally. Out from within death. That's exactly what that preposition means. He was saying, Father, I'm going to go down into death more than any other man. Hell's going to claim me, Hell, and, 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 and I'm claiming that I'm going to come up out from within death by the power of the resurrection. And the Bible says he was heard in that he feared. So when Jesus went to the cross, he already had the title deed of his resurrection in his pocket. Got it? You know what faith is, it's the, literally, it's the title deed of things hoped for. That's exactly what that Greek word means. It's, the, it's a package of documents which give you undisputed title to a piece of land or property. Faith is the title deed of things hoped for. And if you've got the title deed for something, you know you've got it, even if you haven't seen it. Amen? Do you understand me? Supposing you have a rich relative that dies in America and they, they own a big farm, 3,000 acres, 3, acres of land and it's worth $20 million. And the title deed comes through, you, through to the post and the lawyer says, well this is all yours, it's your inheritance. Well, when you get the title deed you go crazy. You don't wait to walk on the land. Because you believe in the, the documentation as giving you absolute undisputed title to the thing not yet seen. Got it? Now Jesus obtained his resurrection by a battle of faith, a legal battle of prayer and faith in the Garden of Gethsemane. So when he went to the cross, he already had the title deed in his pocket for his resurrection. Hallelujah. Oh, I could say a lot more about this, but can you see that? He knew about fighting and winning wars. Right, come to the next thing, on the cross, as if he hadn't done enough in the Garden of Gethsemane, He doesn't spend his time on the cross riding in agony. He spends his time on the cross winning vital spiritual battles in the heavenlies. And of course, we're told this in the great psalm, Psalm 22. Have you ever read Psalm 22? It's an incredible psalm. It was written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. I can only assume that David must have had an incredible vision of Calvary. He must have seen the whole thing, all the detail of it. And furthermore, he understood the spiritual implications of it. And I believe that by that revelation, David became a New Testament believer a thousand years before the the crucifixion took place in time because when he built his tabernacle he lived like a New Testament believer prancing around in front of God as a priest when he had no right to he wasn't of the tribe of Levi coming into the holiest of all and living face to face with God all totally illegal by the law David's tabernacle is full of total illegality Amen You understand what I I probably understand what I'm talking about, but I tell you, it's an an incredible thing to to grasp what this man saw in the Spirit. And one of the things he saw was he saw the victories that Jesus retained. Now again, we can't spend time on it. Come to Psalm 22. And we'll just give ourselves the pleasure of a few minutes. It begins with this, this agonizing cry, verse 1 My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why did God forsake him? Because he had become sin. Because all the blackness of Adam's sinful nature and all the activity of Adam's sinful acts were laid upon Christ, he became the filthiest sinner, uh, not his own, but that in given to him. You understand me? So father and son had to separate. And all uh, and the 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 breadth of hell came between Father and Son on the cross. And he was in the black darkness. Oh my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he had become sin. Because all the sins of Adam's race have come upon him and the father cannot look upon sin. So he's absolutely alone, cut off from his father, overwhelmed by the sins of the world and and in the black darkness of hell and all he's got for company is mocking men saying ah he saved others but he can't save himself. Jeering demons and the excruciating physical pain of the cross. So what does he do? He starts to fight a battle of faith beloved. Now don't you wait to feel good to fight battles of faith. Because if ever you're going to see a breakthrough for God, you're going to feel at times as if you're being crucified spiritually. And that's the time to dig your heels in and fight. Just like your wonderful Saviour Jesus. And right there, on the cross, stretched out in pain, in the blackness of hell mocked and jeering demons and mocking and jeering men he starts to fight a battle and as you go through Psalm 22 you can see him coming up out of it step by step we haven't time to go through the whole thing but if you'll just come with me to uh, verse 20 he starts to cry oh my God deliver me from the sword save me from the lion's mouth verse 21 then by the time he's come to 22 he's beginning to get hold of God for the church He already has the title deed to his resurrection in his pocket, but he's not content with that. He wants to win the church. He doesn't want to be raised alone. He wants to raise many people with him. Hallelujah. So verse 22, I will praise your name to my brethren. In the midst of the great congregation, I will praise you. And that word praise, by the way, is the Hebrew word halal. You know what halal means? It means to rave, to be extravagantly foolish, to dance, to shout, jump on. Now that's the kind of saviour we've got. Why was he doing this? In spirit, on the cross, beloved. Not in a nice happy-clappy, you know, charismatic meeting. In the agony of Calvary, in spirit, he was saying, I'm praising you for the great congregation. He already could see the church and he was obtaining the church by his mighty intercession, beloved. Now start to learn something about our wonderful Saviour. Let's get his spirit into us. And so he obtains the church. He snatches it out of the devil's teeth while he's still in agony. Oh, I love this man, don't you? I love this saviour. Oh, I could talk for hours about this. Hallelujah. Come down to verse 24. He's not despised or abhorred. You see, he, although his physical condition says, you're an utter predation, all these states around the North of India, it is still so barren. And then when you come to the Punjab, I was looking at it and suddenly in the Punjab it said 7%. I said, Lord, why should the Punjab be 7% when all the other surrounding states are 0-1 p- and zero two? 2 And the Lord just said two words to me. He said, praying hide. And that, he died at the age of 39, but that man's prayers have affected the statistical map of India. And there's a far more Christians in Punjab today by almost several hundred percent because one man learned how to pray. We could give many more examples of this sort of thing. Got it? All right. We'll just take a few more examples of this. Um, there's a man called Oman Kabira. Shall I tell you about him very quickly? He is an Argentinian. He's in his 50s now. But when revival was, was hanging over Argentina, he was one of the young men that God used. He was, in fact, in a Bible school. It was an Assemblies of God Bible school about... 30 people, everything in Argentina was miserable and small. The power of royal was so totally strong, the power of the occult and witchcraft was so strong that missionaries had worked there for, for decades, if not centuries, and all they had established was a few little miserable churches with 20 or 30 people with about 3,000 problems each. Oh, it was a mess. And there was this... There were certain things that happened, I haven't time to tell you all the stories, but I want to focus on this little little young man, he was about 22 years of age then, and he went to this Bible school, and he had a bit, most of them hadn't even got a heart for God and things were so bad. But he went out in the fields and began to learn to pray, and one night he stayed out in the fields too long, and they shut the college up, and he was still out in the fields praying. And while he was out there alone praying, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. He was absolutely terrified. and the, This awesome sight. He ran for his life to the college to find it was all locked up. He beat on the doors, woke everybody up. They finally opened the doors and let him come in. By this time, this manifestation of the angel had disappeared, but the presence came in with him. And the whole college was suddenly filled with this awesome presence of God and the students tumbled out of bed, ran down to the chapel and started to get right with God. Some of them packed their bags and fled because they couldn't stand the presence of God. Because some of them weren't living right. They were living corrupt double lives. And over a period of three and a half weeks they just more or less stayed in the presence of God. Their lectures were suspended and they were just in a permanent sort of meeting with the lord and they were getting prophecies and visions which they were writing up on the on the blackboard in languages that they'd never learned it wasn't just tongues it was written tongues and in english particularly in other languages they were writing up prophecies of god's purposes in the end time and those prophecies are still being fulfilled i mean it's a remarkable thing some of those prophecies some of them have been fulfilled now this young man his name was omar kabira and then uh, after that, God began to use him. I haven't time to tell the whole story. He's actually coming to preach in, in my church in England this weekend. He will be there kicking off a crusade for us. My son-in-law first met him in Argentina when he was researching for crusades for Reinhard Bonker, And he, had, he spent a week with him and with his son. He's in his 50s now. But this man, over this period of time, has been to, I think, between 70 and 80 cities in Argentina. And he will go to the city he will rent a hotel room and he will engage the principality of that region and he will wrestle because God's taught him how to wrestle until that prince comes down on two occasions this demonic being has manifested himself in his bedroom and tried to bargain with him say well look we'll come to terms on this and he said no I'm not making any terms with you you just go you're finished get out of here and on every occasion he succeeded in pulling down the principality and then and only then will he start an evangelistic campaign with the result that in every one of these cities there's a church between two and ten thousand people established. So he's got a sort of a a ministry fruit established in churches of something like two hundred thousand people. And that's just another example of what I'm talking about, okay? So he's coming to St Albans this weekend in England. St Albans is about the most religious city in Britain. It's right on our patch, and we're we're having an evangelistic campaign to, pre- to to plant a church there. It's the it's the only it's the place in Britain where the first Christian martyr was martyred in the year six a- A.D. 680, I think it was. And it's the and it's a, a stronghold of Catholicism. It's the only place in Britain which gives um, which has the able to claim that a, a Pope was born. The only British Pope was born there. And it's absolutely full of the most incredible strong religious demons. I mean, you go there and there's this great St. Albans Abbey that sits on the hill over the site of this martyr. And the whole place throbs with the demonic darkness. It's used for interfaith things now. And all the Buddhists and the Muslims come and say, well, we're all really serving the same God. And I tell you, that's coming down in Jesus' name. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> anyway. Amen. And multitudes are going to come in. So, I, uh, in, in Bombay in 1972, my wife and I were planting a church in a, a terribly strong... It was a Portuguese colony originally, and then it was given over to the British as a wedding present, and it's, it's, it's riddled with the worst kind of Catholicism mixed with Hinduism. Can you imagine what a potent mix that is? It is so black and iniquitous, I cannot describe it to you. My wife and I, we were planting a church in the middle of all this. It was so... I mean it was a battle we were actually physically attacked by demons i i was actually physically attacked by demons one day they came and attacked me in bed and i had to i, I know i i had to fight but i'll tell you what happened in, inside me when i suddenly found these things resting with me i suddenly went i said i said what cheek you know how dare they i didn't feel a bit scared i never even thought about being scared i was just indignant and, and, and as I rose up in indignation, they somehow lost their power over me and they started to, to break away. And as they went out of the room, I remember this, I, I leapt off the bed. I used to be quite a rugby player and I hit them in a flying tackle as they went through the, went through the <laughs> curtains. And, 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 but the top was the curtains all fell down on top of me. And by the time I got myself untangled from these curtains, uh, they, they disappeared. And, and of course we have you know, lots of iron bars in the windows and double locked doors because it's a, it's a terrible area for thieving and lawlessness and yet I went round the whole place and there was no sign they'd vanished and I was so mad I remember that and my wife uh, had, was away that weekend seeing the children in boarding school so when she came home and then the church we'd got about 40 people together in this church and then all the power of hell hit all these people and suddenly we were down to 8 people and everywhere there was this shout, the devil's Lord around here, the devil's Lord round here, and we're never going to plant a church here. And so we just got into our little meeting room and we started to wage war. We felt black and blue, spiritually battered and harassed, and I can't tell you the depression that was upon us. But somehow we forced ourselves to praise God, we made ourselves dance, we shouted every positive scripture about who Jesus was and what his name was, and we went on hour after hour, hour after hour, and then I can only say that some, we felt something break in the heavenlies. Hard to describe, but we just felt something go like crack. And, we, and somehow we knew we were through it. We, 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 we soon we were dancing. We were, we were, we, then we fell on the floor and laughed. And we just rolled, you know, like it says in Psalm 2. And he that sits in the heavens, he shall have them in derision. And somehow the laughter of God got hold of us. And we finally went to bed after hours. And we knew that something had happened. Amen. And the next Sunday, everybody was back. But that was only just a tiny little thing. I mean, I was, I was mad over these 40 people. But it, it broke something in the heavens. And God started a revival then in that whole region and we saw over the next four years this is not at all an exaggeration we saw something like 100,000 of these Catholics born again and filled with the Holy Spirit we saw every kind of miracle we saw, oh it was incredible I mean it was marvellous and uh, I haven't time to tell you the whole story but, but if I had known then what I know now it needn't have stopped after four years Because we we let the things slip out. We let, and I I won't go into all that now, but you have a lot to learn. You see, the prayers of the saints are vital to the breakthrough of God, which takes me on to uh, the last thing I want to talk about as quickly as I can, and that is the military battle. All right? And as I say, these two things do overlap. So come back to Luke 11, 22. And I'll I'll be as brief as I can, then we're going to pray. Luke 22. And we're t- well, we're told, first of all, in verse 21, that this strong man is fully armed, and there needs to be an activity. Number one, we have to disarm him. Colossians 2.15. Have you got that? When Jesus ascended, one thing he did, we're told, in Colossians 2.15, was that he, what does it say in your Bible? Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Alright? And I want to just mention very quickly some of the things you're going to have to disarm the Satan of. Now this is now where you start to move as an army, as a military army. Number one, accusations. Accusations you'll often find that the devil uses a spirit of accusation to cause discord among the brethren. It's one of his weapons. If I could do no more than just touch on each of these. And if you sense that spirit coming, you go to war with it. You need to take up military action. Because it's a weapon that will divide if you don't deal with it. Number two is disarm him by removing all ground of sin if there's ground of sin then it's ground that he can stand on now and especially I I want to talk about the sin of disobedience let me just say this very quickly John chapter 14 verse 30 Jesus said the prince of this world is come but he has nothing in me that wasn't because of his deity, it was because of his obedient humanity. John 14, verse 30, three zero. The prince of this world has come, he's got nothing in me. And it was, it was the humanity of Jesus which was impregnable to the devil, not his deity. Okay, and in the next verse, verse 31, he tells us why. He says, I always do the will of my father. Got it? So if you live in perfect obedience, the devil cannot touch you any more than he can touch Jesus. And I don't care if Satan himself comes against you. I don't care how big the prince demon is, he can't do a thing. If you are as obedient as Jesus. Amen? So that's an important thing. And the trouble is that most people don't take that seriously. Number three, he deals with fear. or or, sorry, his weapon is fear and you have to disarm God's people of that weapon and in in Luke chapter 1 and verse, uh, I think it's 75 if I remember correctly Luke chapter 1 verse 74 verse 73 it says that God swore an oath to our father Abraham okay this is what he swore it's, it's part of his holy covenant he swore an oath to our father Abraham verse 74 to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life, isn't that a tremendous promise? Yeah. that's a covenant promise God made to Abraham and if you've got fear in your life you want to get your birthright Amen now, in the average Christian community, my experience is about one-third of them live in fear of one kind or another. And the, and the most persistent fear is the fear of death. And I, I want to tell you this, I'm not bragging, because I know when God dealt with this, I am not at all a scared of dying. There are certain ways of dying that don't exactly grab me. <laughs> Amen? But I'm not scared of dying. And I, I've told the devil this, that if God permits him to take my life, I'm claiming a hundredfold fruit. Amen. That God will have the legal right to raise up a hundred Alan Vincents to replace me. And, and on that basis, it will be a good investment, wouldn't it? Do you believe that? Amen. Now, I was in Mombasa about uh, two years ago. It was Christmas time. Reinhard Bonke was going to have a crusade in Mombasa. And you may know this or not know this, but Mombasa has been taken over by the muslims every all but one of the city councillors was a muslim and they were not going to let reinhardt come into mombasa they just weren't going to let him come they threatened civil unrest they threatened everything and they would then they would not grant a, a crusade site and i went there to meet with my daughter and son-in-law who were organizing reinhardt's crusades and they were living in Nairobi. and we went to mombasa we were i met, went there over christmas and they arranged a few pastors conferences while I was there, and I had three days with the pastors of Mombasa. about six hundred of them came and it was the weekend of the Christmas and he was going to have his crusade the last weekend of January they still hadn't got a crusade site and he had said if we don't get something this weekend then we will have to cancel the crusade they'd never ever done that in their history before and I met with these pastors on and I Thursday, I think it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or it was something like that anyway. And when I, these men came together, you could feel the fear of Islam all over them. And so I started to minister to this. And I remember when the release came. And I said to them, look, the worst that can happen is that you can die. So what? And they said, yeah, that's right. I said, well, is heaven better than Mombasa? Well, where would you rather live? I mean, let, let's be real about this. Do we believe in heaven or don't we believe in heaven? Do we believe that to depart and to be with Christ is far better? Is that true or isn't it true? And, and anyway, we, God broke through that fear and, and they, they were delivered from their fear. And then we had the most almighty prayer meeting you ever had in your life. And they said, we don't care whether we die or not. We're going to see Jesus come to Mombasa. And the whole spirit changed. And we went to war and stormed the heavenlies. I tell you, that night was absolutely magnificent. That was Friday night. On the Saturday morning, President Moy himself telephoned and said that he would grant the presidential assembly ground for the crusade. Now that meant that he was now stepping out online because he's got more than a million Muslims in his country, some of them very powerful, very influential, so it was politically a dangerous thing to do to come out openly for Reinhardt and for for Jesus and, and risk the wrath of the Muslims. But God put boldness into him while we were praying in Mombasa. And his whole attitude has changed since that day. And anyway, we had the crusade took place and it was a great success. Amen? So we have to be free of fear. The worst that can happen is that you can die. So what? Now get that right into your spirit. It's better to have three years passionate ministry for Jesus than 40 years of safety where you never dare anything for God. Do you believe that? You see, when the world was shaken by the great missionary movement at the end of the, the 19th century, that was the attitude of the young people. And many of them did die. Many of them died. And they didn't reckon to come back after their first five years. They said goodbye to ever for their parents. And many of them never did come back. It didn't stop them going. But they shook the gates of hell over nations across the earth. And, and God broke through all over the place. Amen. I'd better not spend so much time on each one, but that was important. Right, doubt, number four. You've got to disarm the people of doubt, I'll just say that. Number five, disillusionment. Oh, it's a waste of time, we can never change the world. That kind of talk. Number six, depression. Number seven, sickness, and number eight, poverty. We have to remove all these weapons. Why should the devil be allowed to keep the church poor? I'll put Norman on in a minute to really hit that. <laughs> Amen. All right. So that's number 1, disarm him. Number 2, attack him. Attack him. Tell him who Jesus is. Tell him what Jesus did at Calvary. Tell him. I mean, rather, you know, just declare in the heavenlies. Just declare heavens the the rule of our God. And and on on the way, Ephesians 4 chapter 6, put on your armor to make sure you're invincible. All right. That's all I can say. Number three, take away the armour on which he has relied. If you're going to attack him, make sure he's thoroughly vulnerable before you do. There's certain armour on which Satan relies. And I'll tell you, there are four things particularly that God has shown me. And if we remove his armour, then he becomes vulnerable. Number one is division amongst the saints. He can, if he can rely on that then it makes him powerful and the church weak. But if we take away the division, then he loses his power. And I give you Cedar Rapids as an example of this. Where brethren grow together in unity, great power is released. That's got to be true denominationally, racially, and in every other dimension. When we come together as one, I tell you the power that we're released will be, whoa, fantastic. Amen? That's all I can say about that at the moment. So, number two... Unbelief. Unbelief is an activity. It is not absence of faith. Do you understand that? Unbelief is an activity against the working of God. And it is not simply absence of faith. I dare not spend more time on that, but it's an important thing to understand. Number three is we put away our disobedience. Because he relies on that. He relies on the children of God, not obeying God and not obeying their leaders. If you take that away, then he's finished. Turn to two scriptures. Second Corinthians. How am I doing for time? Second Corinthians chapter 10. You know that scripture? Have you got it? Verse 4. Our weapons... The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, you know these scriptures, but are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. Do you believe that? Yeah. All right. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So everything in this nation that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, you have the right to pull it down with your spiritual weapons. That's what the Bible says. Hallelujah. Go on. Verse 5 uh. uh bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, verse 6, and being ready to punish all disobedience. Now my question is when? When will God do this? Is there a special sovereign time or is there a moment or what? Well you find the answer at the end of verse 6. Whenever your obedience is complete. See the devil never has been a problem to God, it's the obedience of God's people which is a problem to God. Whenever your reason is then then I'll do all these things. Come to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Verse 20. Lovely verse. Do you like this verse? Romans 16:20. "I like this better than my God shall supply all your need." I mean, I like that verse too, but I like this verse. <laughs> I've never seen this hanging on a Christian's wall yet. Romans 16 verse 20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Amen? Amen. See, what happened was this. We're told in Genesis 3 that Jesus bruised the serpent's head. He took away his headship. He took away his authority. He took away his right to rule. But he didn't destroy him. But it's the church's job to destroy him. He took away his headship. He took away his governmental authority. He took away his power to rule. But he's given it to the church to destroy him. And Paul says to the Romans, the God of peace is going to crush Satan under your feet shortly. And then in verse 19 he gives the reason why. He says, Your obedience has reached to all and I'm rejoicing over you. Hallelujah. Can you see that? So if God gets an obedient people, then... The crushing of Satan is an automatic consequence. Isn't that wonderful? Let's move on as quickly as we can. Alright, so there's disobedience. And finally, number four, that is apathy. The time is not right to build a house. Let's carry on building our sealed houses. You know, there's there's a, a fire that's got to get into our spirit. Apathy is a, is one of the most subtle of the devil's weapons it comes like a sort of wet blanket you know like a, a mist across god's people they all go oh, well i'd like to go pray but and this has got to be absolutely destroyed i mean let's let's say god put a fire in my boiler in jesus name There's, see it says of jesus the zeal of his house consumed him would you like that zeal to get in you Amen. Right. We're moving on quickly to the end then. Okay. Right. And then when we've taken away the arm which he's relied and attacked him, he's incredibly vulnerable. And he'll run like a scared rabbit. And then we can plunder his goods. His goods are, of course, all the people that are held in captivity by him. They're all the financial resources that he ought ought not to have but we ought to have their facilities and buildings. It's the political climate to move across the nation, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, these are things we can plunder him of. Amen? Hallelujah. And then, now let me just say a few more things and we'll finish. In the legal battle, as I've already said, uh, we need ones, twos, or threes to fight the legal battle. But when it comes to the military battle, we need companies of people. All right, but what we do need, and this is what I want you to cry with me for, is that these companies of people, they need generals to lead them. Now, when you come together in your dozens or hundreds for prayer, you need a prayer commander who knows what he's doing. See, in a, a natural army... The generals strategize on the battle plan. Then they come to the troops and say, right, you do this, you do that, you do the other. And the, the army moves in obedience to its generals who have the revealed plan of battle given to them. And they go for very specific, very strategic targets. Right, this company here, Captain Soho, yes sir, right, your job is to take hill number 427. Get out the map reference, you'll need this and this and the other. And he said, Now that's your job, you go and get that, forget about the rest of the war, this is your job. You do your bit and then everybody else is doing their bit and the total, total effect is a complete conquest of the enemy. And, I, and, and my perception, if I may say this respectfully, of my little touch of South Africa is I have not yet seen people praying in this way. I don't see any prayer generals and I don't see armies coming together to be directed by those prayer generals. You know how to pray as individuals. But I have not, not yet seen, I may be wrong here, I have not yet seen the ability to move effectively in corporate prayer. And I tell you, you need to cry out for generals. And then you need to come together to be directed by those generals. You know, to lead a prayer meeting takes more preparation than preaching or anything else. If I'm gonna lead, if I'm gonna lead a, a, like we do have days of prayer, I will uh, certainly fast for the day and I'll seek God for strategy. So when I go to the meeting, I know where we're going. I know the targets that God's given to us. I know I've got from my heavenly commander the battle plan for this particular company of troops. And then I will, under God, you know, we're sensitive to the spirit in the meeting, but we use the word of God and we we use God's battle plan to gain specific objectives. And we've done this and we've seen some wonderful things happen. Like You may remember in Britain, a, a few years back, Britain was almost destroyed by a terrible miners' strike that lasted more than a year. And certain people, a particular man called Arthur Scargill was the centre of this. Now, we pulled him down in our prayer meeting. And God said to us that that, that man, he said, I, I've allowed you to taste the possibility of Because we had people being murdered and killed. We never believed this could happen in Britain. And God said, I've given you a taste of the anarchy that could come if you don't start praying. So I've let you come to the brink of disaster. But he said, this time I will save you, providing you learn to pray. And he said, now target your prayers on this man. Now, don't be afraid to target men. Men of God, you need to put a shield of protection around them. Name them. Guard them with your prayers. Men who are working for Satan, you pull them down in Jesus' name. And neutralize their power in Jesus' name. You've got to have a bit of strategy. And after all, you, you want to take out the, the, the enemy positions which are, which are harassing you. That, that, surely that's right, isn't it? And so there's there's an intelligence about this whole thing. That's where words of knowledge can come in. It's like the you know the CIA of God can give you an insight into the enemy's strategy and you can you can deal with these things in the heavenly realm. Okay? You've got a picture of that. So you need generals. And the actual activity will often be praise and worship and warfare songs and specific talks. like even, I've got lots of examples in scripture. You know the Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20, um, Joshua 6 when he came to Jericho, you've got lots of examples in scripture of this sort of thing. And we saw it in Psalm 149 with the high praises of God in our mouth and two-edged sword in our hand, so on and so forth, right? right let me just say these last things then, you press through until the position is gained. You have to learn to pray battering ram prayers. You understand what I mean by that? You know, when you're going against a heavily fortified city, you keep hitting it with a battering ram. Bang, bang. And you don't get the impression at first that anything's happening. And you may have night after night of prayer and nothing seems to be happening, but there will come a point when it will crack. Down it goes. So there's a perseverance in, in battering ram prayers that you have to learn to pray directed by the Holy Spirit, you may have to keep bashing away at a thing until it comes down. I might add today that Arthur Scargill is nowhere in Britain today. He's totally lost his political clout. God pulled him down through our prayers. Because he was a wicked man, out just to cause anarchy and trouble. I'm not saying there weren't injustices, but this man was exploiting the situation for demonic purposes. The injustices need to be rectified, but they need to be rectified in a righteous way. Do you understand me? Okay. Right. Don't stop at the first success. Press home the attack, even when the enemy is on the run. That's the time not to quit. That's the mistake we made in Bombay. You remember when Elisha spoke to um, Joash, and, 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 and when he was on his deathbed, and, and he said, shoot the arrows to the wind. And he said, now strike the, strike the, strike the spear on the ground. And he did it three times. He said, oh, if you had done it six or seven times, you would have totally destroyed the Syrians. And we've got to keep going for it until the thing... See, what I'm worried about is that as you start to see the first successes in South Africa, you can ease up the prayer. Now's the time to intensify it. Until you totally press on the attack. because we can see the first signs of a breakthrough. Now's the time to intensify the prayer assault, not to let it ease off. Okay? Well, I'm going to stop there, and we're going to pray now. Okay? Let's stand. Let's just begin to pray. Just call on God. Just pray in tongues, if you can pray in tongues. Just just call on God. Let's ask for God's spirit just to come down. Here. Oh God. will you impart to us the ache of your own heart? Amen. I'm prepared to share to some degree your burden for the nations. Will you do that? I give my body to you, dear Holy as I've never done before. To become a place where you can travel, where you can groan and pray and, and win victories. Lord, I confess to you, I don't know how to pray. But I'm willing to learn. I don't even want to stop at personal prayer life. Now, Lord, you've given me a taste for these other levels of prayer. I want you to teach me how to pray. I give myself to you, dear Holy Spirit, to this end. Is that your prayer? Well, pray it. Pray it in your own words. Express your own heart. I don't expect an almighty holy ghost deluge but what I do expect is I expect you to catch a virus this morning virus do you want to be infected? I'll tell you what we're going to do it may seem strange to you but this is what I believe the spirit of God has said I just want the, the first row just to come out front and turn around and face the rest of the people will you do that? And I want you just to take my hands. That's right, you come in here. That's right. Then I want you to just everybody to, to link up with these and join hands with them. If you want to catch the infection that is, all right? Do you understand? Just go row to row and just touch each other. That's right. If you want if you want to receive, do you want to receive from God? Are you ready to be infected? Learn how to pray amen because i believe i have a mandate from god to release something among you in jesus name so just be open and receiving ready to receive from god father we want to thank you we want to receive from you this morning father in the mighty name of jesus i call down that mighty spirit of of intercession to be released among these people Father I ask you now in the name of Jesus that a, a glorious virus the virus of passion for, for God and for your purposes might now spread amongst these people right now in Jesus name Lord if I had time I'd lay hands on each every one of them but Lord I'm just going to trust you now that your spirit will just go up and down these rows in Jesus name and just go from heart to heart and spirit to spirit in Jesus name that Father from this day forward A new burden is going to come upon us in Jesus' name. A new ability is going to come upon us in Jesus' name. A new faith is going to be released upon us, Lord. A new power and authority in the heaven is going to come upon us, Lord. Lord, train us in Jesus' name. Lord, now in the name of you, I just loose that authority upon these people. I loose that infection upon them in Jesus' name. Let your power run up and down these rows, Lord. Touch the hearts and spirits of these precious young people. Oh, Shanda Makasudor. Let's just pray in tongues. And just receive from God. Let's call out to God for the nation. For the nations. Let the indignation of God come upon you in Jesus' name. Shanda Makasudendi Chor. Tida Makasudendi Madame de Nistara kusola nama shtendi madame Findi makatora kushtendi. Hallelujah. We will see the victory of our God. Oh God. We pull down principalities and powers. Break through. Shandam okasa in Jesus name now receive by faith just receive it hallelujah Lord I want to praise you for what you're going to achieve through us in Jesus name Lord, I thank you for the militancy you've put into our hearts. I thank you for the perseverance you've given us. Lord, most of all, we thank you for God the Holy Spirit who's come to take hold of us and by his mighty power and presence to turn us into the very finger of God. God, in Jesus' name, Lord, we declare that we're at war that Jesus might be glorified his kingdom established demonic principalities and powers pulled down and Lord that multitudes and multitudes might be released from his prison and coming to the glorious liberty of the children of God hallelujah hallelujah we thank you in his mighty name Hallelujah. Shanda Marcus Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Shanda Marcus Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Well, I better let you go, I suppose.
2: I, I don't think that statement is, is worthy of answer. Um, from the standpoint that, uh, but Alan, what you've shared will not let us go. So even if you are not with us in presence, that message is going to remain in our hearts and in our lives. Amen. I just want to issue one warning. One warning, guard the word that you've heard. Okay? So all I'm going to share with you, guard the word that you've heard and allow that seed to grow. I've heard, as, as Brother Alan was sharing, some areas of uh, spiritual warfare that have uh, gone overboard. And then, of course, once you hear the overboard message, you go into the other ditch. Well, I won't get involved in anything. And this is one of the finest, mature, balanced messages that I've heard concerning spiritual warfare, the attitude of prayer, the attitude of relationship with God. And I want to thank you for being the messenger of that word. And uh, we're going to take hold of it and tear down the gates of hell in our lives, in the lives of others, in the life of the nation. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Where you can start today, you know that. Praise God. Are you standing here, Brother John? You're right. Okay. Well, can we just pray for, for Brother Alan because he's departing? Uh, I'd like uh, Brother Norman, who's visiting with us, to, to pray. And uh, John, please come.
1: Well, why don't you stretch your hands towards our Brother? Amen. You receive a lot today. Amen. Father, we want to thank you this morning again in Jesus' name for sending your servant amongst us. We thank you, Lord, for the anointed words from his mouth today that's quickened us again by the Holy Ghost to be people of prayer. Thank you, Lord, that as we pray for this nation, as we pray for our families, as we pray for those in our relatives, Father, we thank you we'll see the breakthrough in Jesus' name. And now, Father, we pray back upon your servant, brother and Lord, your blessings. Thank you, Lord, for divine safety, divine protection, divine provision, divine direction, divine fruitfulness, the the blessings of God to overtake him, Father, and abound towards him. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, for an increase of your wisdom, an increase, Father, of your strength upon him spiritually and physically. We thank you, Father, you supply all of his needs for him and his family, Father, in Jesus' name. And we thank you, Lord, for the ministering angels that surround him today as he goes forth. And we just thank you, Lord, you'll send them back to us. We agree, Lord, you send them back to us to be a greater blessing, Father, in the days that lie ahead. Thank you, Lord, we receive from him, and we pray, Lord, your blessing back upon him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
2: Okay, allow us two minutes to, to leave, and then you're free to go. Thank you.